welcome back. It's January the 18th of this brand new year. Last week I started telling you a story about getting old and about the, well, the things that come with getting old. It's called A Familiar Face. And I'm going to go find the storyteller and we're going to pick back up where we left off. I didn't see Sue again until Wednesday morning. Monday was a holiday. We, well, we used to call it Columbus Day. I don't know what the hell they call it now. Tuesday morning, I woke feeling pretty well. Two hours into the morning, I'd forgotten where I was. No, that's not good. You see, I haven't told you everything about me yet. Someone once said, my silence means I'd rather talk to myself than you. Don't take that wrong. I don't know you well enough to ignore you. I most likely never will. But I've discovered over the years, the best listener I know lives between my ears. The lofty position of best is merited because the voice inside my head, I named him Sam uh, for no good reason, listens but rarely speaks. He, or if you prefer, it, listens without interrupting or proffering unsolicited advice. Sam is never critical or patronizing. He's not a sounding board to bounce thoughts off of, but more of a dark void where my senseless ramblings innocently disappear with my last word. Occasionally, Sam whispers a word or two, never more than wanted, never more than needed. This morning, as the sun was wiping the sleep from its eyes, I sat in front of my apartment door. It's the only door. The back door is not really a door at all. Staring at the brass knob, trying to remember what the fuck am I supposed to do with it. Sam, the voice inside, spoke. Why are you here? Four years ago, my doctor informed me I had the symptoms of early stage Alzheimer's. Symptoms is all the overpriced medical genius can offer when diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. Evidently, the confirmation of said disease can only be made via an autopsy. Now, ain't that the shit? I spent the next year in denial, forgetting where I put my keys to my house or not remembering my publisher's name. Did not mean I had dementia. I must... I guess it just meant I was getting old. That's all. Denial, however, did not stop the progression of the disease. I forgot about a book signing that had been scheduled for months. Two in-person meetings and hours and hours of conference calls had gone into planning the event. It was my first book in five years. Kind of a big deal, you know, for my re-emerging career. I just forgot to show up. My publisher, her, oh, damn it, I can't remember her name. Well, she was pissed. On the following Monday, I called the Forget-Me-Not Assisted Living and Memory Care Unit. I didn't tell them about the Alzheimer's diagnosis. A 70-year-old man in a wheelchair with a large bank account is an ideal candidate for the assisted living section of the Forget-Me-Not community. They pride themselves on the privacy of their residents. 
No one need know the local author and Bridgetown's poet laureate needed assistance to live. Now, I've never been married, so there was no wife to consider. My sister, younger by seven years, is the only relative I maintain a, a relationship with. If, or I say, I should say, when this disease reaches the severe stage, well, the Alzheimer's patient can be a pain in the ass. My sister does not deserve the burden of caring for an asshole. She's already married to one. She would have done it, though. She would have opened her home to me. She would care for me. I have no doubts. She'd wipe strawberry jam off my chin or shit off my ass, laugh at my helplessness while lovingly and caringly waiting for me to die. That's the kind of woman my sister is. I love her too much to subject her to what is left of my miserable life. My plan was to observe the assisted living side before it became necessary to surrender to the memory care unit. You see, if they cannot score high in one, they're certainly going to fail in the other. There are numerous memory care facilities within, heck, 30 miles of my home. Evidently, it's a booming business. If the forget-me-not assisted living and memory care unit sucks, well, I have choices. I don't know how long I stared at that doorknob like an imbecile, staring at Schrodinger's equation. When at last the brain fog dissipated, I rode down the hallway, arriving in an almost empty dining room. The buffet table was being cleared, but I managed to grab a single biscuit and a tab of marmalade before everything was whisked away to the kitchen, hidden behind double doors, doors which residents are forbidden to pass through. The stainless steel coffee maker gurgled loudly, delivering the last drop into my cup. Outside, I nibbled on the biscuit and sipped at the coffee. As I considered the morning's events, I couldn't remember what happened. Everything I've told you is supposition. I remember waking this morning, turning off the alarm clock, and then opening the door. I know something happened in between the clock and the door. Something I cannot remember. And it may have happened again later that day. Or maybe I just fell asleep sitting in the courtyard. I like to think the latter is the culprit. When I woke, biscuit crumbles littered my lap like Christmas snow. My coffee was cold. Somehow I had managed to hold the cup without spilling a drop. And, well, the end leads me to believe it was not the latter. Things just don't add up to a Rip Van Winkle nap. The sun was going down. Had I been outside in the courtyard all day? I missed lunch. I missed my weekly visit to the bookstore. And I was exhausted. How could I have slept all day and wake up feeling so goddamn tired? The most troubling part, I had moved from the east side of the courtyard to the west. And I don't remember doing it. I rode through the dining room, not stopping or responding to the, Hey, Paul, where you been? Taunts coming from the old folks over there. A stop in the vending area led to a 
supper made of a tuna sandwich, a bag of chips, and a cola. It was awful. But I had to eat before I forgot how to do that, too. Sleep came easily. Say Jack was spinning the big wheel when my eyes folded like Vanna turning a letter. I woke up Wednesday knowing it was Wednesday. It's a good start. I showered, shaved, and brushed my teeth. I was starving and I ate a full breakfast, adding an omelet and two sausage patties to the English muffin. I saw Sue across the room. A small, no, smaller than small, a tiny twinge of I know you, tickled my brain. She smiled and waved before helping Miss Greenstone up from the table and into her wheelchair. Greenstone can walk as well as anyone, but she loves that wheelchair and the empathy that comes naturally from the staff. Outside, it was misting. The sky was gray, but with a sliver of blue in the west, promising a nicer day. Instead of going to the courtyard, which would mean first going back to my apartment to get a hat and a coat, I decided I would make up my missed trip to the bookstore. There was something there I wanted. John Grisham's latest novel was propped up on the front counter, so I headed to the new release area and dropped the fat book, Grisham's novels are always fat, onto my lap. I quickly perused the other new releases, but nothing caught my eye. I rode through the aisles until I found the self-help section. It didn't take long to find what I was looking for. Two five-foot-long shelves held books about Alzheimer's. I read the back covers of at least a dozen before selecting one called My Life with an Alzheimer's Patient. Now, I wasn't living with the patient. I was the patient. With pragmatic logic, I decided, knowing how the other feels, the one without the disease, could only help me to understand who I was about to become. Like Hyde conferring with Jekyll over morning tea before the unsettling metamorphosis occurs. I put the book on top of the Grisham novel and made my way to the classic literature section. One of my books was missing. There had been five. Now there were four. A gap like a missing tooth between book three and book five. I moved closer to the shelf. The front edge, not quite an inch deep, was covered in dust. I peered into the gap. The shelf is dark brown. Inside the gap, no dust. No book. No shit. (laughs) Someone had bought one of my books. Or stole it. Kleptomania is common among the elderly. Jameson's third piece of advice. Don't leave your shit laying around at the gray-haired stalkerazzi or within hand's reach. I rode to the front counter with happy thoughts nestled between my old man's sagging boobs. I had sold books before. Plenty of them. Not quite enough to make the Times bestseller list, but enough to provide a comfortable retirement. So so why the, the giddiness, you ask, over one stinking book? Because. Just because. Ah, dang it, I owe you more than that. My apologies. The truth is, 
the older I get, the less there is to be giddy about. I don't know what the opposite of giddy is. Whatever it may be, I have plenty of it. Every day I wake up and climb into this fucking wheelchair, I have plenty of not giddiness. Now you understand why one miserable paperback copy of a book written ten years ago made me feel so goddamn good, so giddy. Unfortunately, it didn't last. Three things which did not happen that Wednesday. I didn't see Sue again. I didn't eat lunch or dinner. And I didn't touch the Grisham novel. Back in my apartment, I sat in front of the door that's not a door with the blinds pulled up. The promise of a nicer day had been lost to steady rain and bellowing thunder coming from the south. The lights flickered a few times but never went out. I sat quietly, enjoying the patter of rain against the window with the other book open to the first chapter. The foreword to My Life with an Alzheimer's Patient is unquestionably a downer. The author, a woman with a Swedish-sounding name, revealed in the first paragraphs that her husband, the Alzheimer's patient, he had died before she finished writing the book. She went on to say she had felt an overwhelming sense of responsibility to tell their story before ending with statistics provided by the Population Reference Bureau, whoever the hell they are. The numbers were sad, but not unexpected. The first two chapters were not about living with the AP. I think, uh, I think the author grew tired of typing Alzheimer's patient leading her to create a stupid acronym, sort of like the obnoxious LOL. She wrote about the disease in a manner that reminded me of a biblical timeline, the type you see in study Bibles, needlessly stretching her words over two chapters. I read through it twice. A terrible feeling sank over me with each page with each detailed description of the stages of this disease. I was in for some deep shit. Now Thursday is a day I hope to never forget, but I know I will. I'm writing it down so someone, maybe you, will remember it for me. Just remember. I don't expect you to believe it, to like it, not parts of it or all of it, just remember it. For a day like this must not be lost in the dark cloudiness of an old man's disease, never to be thought of, pondered on, laughed at, or wept over. Sue came to my table as I was spreading butter across the leprose face of an English muffin. Are you going to the courtyard after? she asked, bypassing the need for after what? I will, I told her. Good. I have a question for you. She walked away. I watched her move across the room, thinking she could have asked me the question now. Why keep me in suspense? The way she walked, slightly moving her hips back and forth, strides declaring confidence, daring obstacles to appear, reminded me of, I don't know, 
The tug, tug, tug of memory ropes were resolute through breakfast and two cups of coffee. I stared into my cup, the blackness parting like Moses' sea, revealing thick ropes pulled taut by unseen muscular beast, tugging and tugging and tugging. I blinked away the image before swallowing the last drops of coffee littered by soggy, backwashed muffin crumbs. Outside, Harriet Petrie from apartment 6G was telling me about her grandson, Travis, and his full boat scholarship to Princeton. He's brilliant like his father, she bragged. She had told me this story before, more than a few times. Harriet is 94 years old. I had the pleasure of meeting her grandson, Travis, when he visited her over the Thanksgiving holidays. He's in his 50s, fat with a red face raked with divots as if he doubles as a human dartboard in an English pub called Tilly's. During his annual visit, he had been wearing a ball cap with IWU embroidered on it. I asked him about Princeton. His colorful answer had something to do with queers and rich bitches. I don't think Travis went to Princeton. Sue arrived halfway through Dear Harriet's Reliquian Fantasy, stopping her before she came to my favorite part, Travis's aspiration to become the governor of Rhode Island. I don't know why anyone would want to be the governor of Rhode Island, nor did I ask Harriet for the reasoning. But I did greatly enjoy her telling this part of the story with giddiness. The giddiness of a teenage girl fawning over a high school quarterback. Harriet delivered a stern and disapproving look to Sue before pushing her four-wheeled walker down the path with a discernible rump. I believe you may have slighted, dear Harriet, I said to Sue, looking up at her face. The morning sun cast a white halo around her head, again preventing my opportunity to get a closer look at her. A little tug-tug. Sitting down on the bench, she'll be fine. I've been told she's as tough as nails, Sue smiles. A large oak tree suddenly mutes the clamorous sun. I see her face completely for the first time. Every detail, the scattered freckles playing on her cheeks, the small scar next to her left eyebrow, tug, the way her eyes dart to the left when she smiles, tug, tug, tug. Uh, You you said you had a question, I tell her, trying not to stare. I bought your book, the one on poetry, a small mystery solved. Two, if you count that I didn't know which book was missing from the dust-covered shelf. Thank you, but that's not a question, I tell her. She laughs, pushing a wayward strand of hair out of her eyes. Tug! A titanic-sized jolly boat moves from my medulla oblongata down through the curvature of my spine, around to my gut. Tug! Remember, God dang, remember. I believe in your literary world you would call it an epitaph, she said. It was my turn to laugh. Well, not unless I'm dead. 
a memory from Elliot's Hollow Man. Mr. Cuts, he's dead, invokes another chuckle. I believe you mean an epigraph. Sue looked away. Her foot, the one closest to the chair, taps rapidly against the pathway. Next, the tapping will stop. She'll cross her legs before turning back to me and then brush a wayward strand of hair from her eyes. I don't know how I knew this, but I did. As sure as I know I'm an old man living in an old man's world, sitting in an old man's chair that knows my ass better than any woman ever has, a chair that obeys my commands better than any woman ever did. The tapping foot stops. Sue crosses her legs, folds her hands in her lap. I'd forgotten that part. She turns back to me, brushing a strand of hair away from her eyes. In your poem, about the tree with the gray-bearded lumberjack, the one where he keeps chopping off branches one by one, crying as each branch fell to the ground until only a branchless, dying tree remained. She stops. I'm sorry, I can't recall the, the name of the poem. Without, I told her. Yes, yes, without, her own memory tug released. Are the branches, were the branches metaphorical of your own legs? I looked at her for a moment before turning my eyes to the two sticks protruding below my waist, the things you call legs. I'd never thought of them as branches. Branches are strong and powerful, growing, providing. My legs are thin, weak, and totally useless. Sticks. Thin, stupid sticks. No, I tell her. Was that your question? I didn't mean to sound so callous, but I know I did. She asked another question, ignoring my insensitivity. What happened, Paul? What happened? I touched my breast pocket, feeling for the four-sided box, the home to deliciously devilish cigarettes. Marlboro was my brand. I haven't smoked in 25 years. My pocket's empty. I knew that before I touched it. My hand did not. The fingers fumble around as if by a supernatural touch the missing box will reappear. Sue is watching me, waiting for an answer to her question. What happened? A gentle breeze enters the courtyard, disturbing the leaves and invoking a dry, pitiful rattle. Poor leaves traveling through the valley of death, and they don't even know it. Turning pale, skin cracking, backs curling, hanging on by a thread. They'll be gone soon, raked up and tossed away in a brown paper bag, forever forgotten. Kindred spirits. There was an accident, I tell her, pulling my jacket closed. You want a blanket, Paul? She asked. No. No, thank you. It was an automobile accident many years ago. 
I glanced down at my wheelchair, my oldest companion. I was just 16, just a, just a stupid kid. The author of the Living with an Alzheimer's Patient book had described how older memories often come easier than recent ones, and they come with inexplicable clarity. I hadn't thought about, much less spoke about, the accident in more years than I can count. Yet I told Sue the story as if it had happened yesterday, remembering all the details. I confessed the stupidity of taking my father's car without his knowledge. I described the country road and all of its winding turns, one after another. I told her about the tall pines that lined both sides of the road and how the sun would cast giant shadows across the road that seemed to move like the waves of the sea. Dylan, Dylan was on the radio. I turned the volume up as high as it would go, the Radio Shack speaker screeching out Dylan's words. The windows rattled by arrogant bass. My heart was beating to the music and the sound of the 396 cubic inch big block engine devouring the road. I said, she saw the deer first. I was looking down at the speedometer wondering how fast the car would go. She screamed. I looked up. I paused, glancing up as if I would see that deer standing in the courtyard, staring at me remembering my face it wasn't there <laughs> thank god sue was looking at me i continued the next thing i knew i was in a hospital bed hooked up to tubes and wires six months i never walked again what about your girlfriend what happened to her did i tell her it was my girlfriend I can't remember, I tell her. A little white lie. The door from the dining room to the courtyard opens. No one's there. Maybe the wind blew it open, I think. It opens out, Paul. Don't be a stupid old man, Sam tells me. I don't know what happened to her, correcting my white lie. May I ask you another question? I don't believe I could stop you. Do you ever wish you could walk? I think about her question. Was she offering to share a new miracle drug designed to restore strength to the weak, sight to the blind, legs to the legless? No, I don't think so, I tell her. This chair or others like it have been part of me for decades. Giving up the chair would be like giving up an old friend. I think, looking into her eyes, I think I would rather feel the earth beneath my feet. She starts singing, Yes, I would, if I only could. Her smile widens. El Condor Basta. Oh, I love Simon and Garfunkel. You know Simon and Garfunkel? I have all their albums. 
She brushes a wayward strand of hair away from her eyes. I closed mine. Albums? Tug. Are you okay, PJ? Her voice comes from far away. Soft as, as if it's traveled for miles. Down winding paths through bubbling brooks. Worried by time and distance. Or down a winding road. Through tall pines. I open my eyes. The sun has climbed high into the sky. It, it must be close to noon. How long have we been talking? How long had I slept? I turned to her. What did you call me? She smiles. Tug. Her smile becomes a laugh. Tug. Her green eyes reflect the brilliance of the day. Tug. A wayward strand of golden blonde hair falls down in front of her glimmering eyes. Tug. She pushes it away. Her long, slender fingers crowned with punch pink nail polish. Holy shit. What do you want me to call you? Robin asks. Robin. Robin. Dear God, what is wrong with me? Robin, Robin was my first love, my first dance, my first kiss. Her breast was the first I touched. The first girl, no, no, more than that, the first person to make me look beyond the boundaries of my own life. Boundaries drawn by severe parents and societal preconceptions of a farm boy from Kingsdown, Kansas, who believed in Jesus Christ and the Jayhawks. Robin, who introduced me to Dylan and Joplin, Simon and the curly-haired Garfunkel. Robin Sue, who died in a car crash on a winding road when a deer came between the boundaries in a 396-cubic-inch battering ram. I stuttered like a little boy caught with his hands down the front of his pants. How? How? I don't understand. I need more words, PJ. What are you talking about? I try to stand. That may seem like a little thing to you. Not the standing, goddammit. I made you aware of my condition. But that I tried. I haven't tried to stand in more than 50 years. I remember there was a period following the accident when I didn't try to stand or do anything. But one morning, I woke up with phantom pains in my legs. I experienced these strange, illusionary limb sensations before, but, but nothing like that morning. I began to think I would regain my ability to walk. I obsessed over it, often willing the pain to return. I wanted to try to stand like a, like a normal person does. Just stand up. No help. Well, I need not tell you. I never stood. And I never tried again until this moment. PJ, talk to me. Her voice between a whisper and a song. 
Robin. Robin, you're... You died. That's not very nice. She presents a small frown before touching the corner of her mouth. Tug. No. No, it's not a tug. I've been, to tell, I've been telling you wrong. These were never tugs. Tugs are harmless little reminders, like, like remembering to turn off the lights before going to bed or to get milk on the way home. These were not tugs. These are fuses. Fuses lit by vague recognitions, sparking and then quickly burning out before memories rise from the forgotten past. And then, suddenly out of nowhere or everywhere, the fuse burns and burns and burns until reaching the exterminable destination wrapped tightly in a paper wad made by some Chinese kid exploding, releasing all the memories you thought were gone, soaring higher and higher, so bright you can't turn away from the truth. I look at her, all of her. She is Robin, the Robin of six decades past as if there had never been a a stupid teenage boy driving his father's car too fast, losing control and slamming into a tree. The boy, the boy seeing her fly through the windshield at speeds not humanly possible, knowing she was dead, as the consciousness drained away from him. No, that Robin, well, she would be as old as I am, stamped with wrinkles and walking with canes, wearing makeup applied by shaking hands. That Robin, she would have been my wife and the mother of my children, the grandmother to ours. No, it wasn't that Robin. It was her. The Robin of my memories. I'm sorry, I tell. You're so beautiful. Robin stands. She kisses me lightly. I have to go, BJ. Go? Away? Away. She smiles. And then she sings. I'd rather sail away like a swan that's here and gone. Yes, I would if I could. I surely would. Larry Goodman, the director of Forget Me Not Assisted Living and Memory Care Unit, was in the small break room when she entered. How's he doing today? He asked her. About the same. Maybe a little worse. It's so hard to tell anymore. Goodman nods, taking a sip from a bottle of water. You know, you're the only one he ever talks to. Thank you for checking in on him. I realize it's not your job anymore. He extends a bag of chips to the other. She waves it off. I can't recall anyone, family or friend, ever visiting him. 
even even before the dementia had advanced. Brushing a strand of hair from her eyes. You know, I don't think he's talking to me. Not really. It's so sad. He sits in front of the window the whole time, never looking up at me. He just looks out at the window, looking at the courtyard and speaking quietly. He holds that worn-down pencil in one hand and a notebook on his lap as, as if he's wa- waiting to, you know, to write something down. She shakes her head. I don't think I've ever seen him write anything. You know, he asked for a new book, new notebook every Tuesday, like clockwork. That's all I've ever heard him ask for. What does he talk to you about? Larry asked. Oh, he talks a lot about music. He must have really loved music. Her foot taps the tiled floor as if keeping beat to a song only she hears. Sometimes he talks about cars. She pauses again, looking down at her hands. Do you think he's ever driven a car? She doesn't wait for an answer. He talks about books, and he talks about poets. Poets I've never heard of. Bradstreet and Brian or Byron. But he talks like I know who they are. Never expounding, just talking, you know. She opens a can of soda. The pop is loud in the small room. Staring out the window, holding his pencil and notebook. It never changes, she frowns, touching the corner of her mouth. He doesn't look very well today. Seems like he was trying to remember something or someone. I think he might die soon. Well, many come here to do just that, the director tells her. At least Mr. Paul Jamison can still carry on somewhat of a conversation. Thanks to you. Many patients, well, will just mumble nonsense like, like little babies. Oh, I can understand him, she smiles. It is strange, you know. You get to know them a little bit. Always being careful not to get too close or too attached to them. But with Paul? Sometimes I feel like I've known him forever. Sometimes it's it's like a familiar face, you know, but, but you can't quite place. Does that ever happen to you? The director stands, tossing the bag of chips and empty water bottle into a receptacle. It has. He turns to walk away. Thank you again for spending time with him. You know, Robin, I think he might just like you. And that ends this short story called A Familiar Face.